If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 20. Today is a great day for the church at Brook Hills. Almost two years ago, I found myself in a communist nation, spending time with, with pastors who were planting churches like, like wildfire. And as we talked to these pastors that were planting all of these churches, they would all say to, to me, they would say, well, as you know, a church is, is not healthy if it's not reproducing. And I'd say, yes, I know. And then I would walk away just hanging my head because the reality is we as a church have, have not been reproducing. And, and that is a picture of lack of health. And so I came back and shared with the elders and then we began to walk through the word and we as a faith family began to talk, right, what does this look like in our midst? And we began a church planting residency where we said we're going to be intentional about training up men from within us to go out and lead teams of people from us to go into unreached context in the world and underreached context in North America. So almost two months ago now, we, we sent off our first, first church planter and his wife who will be leading a team going to the Arundo of North Africa, a dangerous, unreached people group, taking the gospel to them. And we as a faith family adopting that people group saying we want to be a part of church planting there. And then this morning, we have the privilege of commissioning out not even just a church planter and his wife, his family, but a whole team of people whom God has called out from our midst to go to the Pacific North, Northwest, to go to Seattle, to plant a church there. And so, in just a few minutes, I'm going to have an opportunity to introduce you via video to many of the members of this team. And then you're going to have an opportunity to hear from the pastor of this team, Andrew Arthur, who has been involved in this church planning residency. Andrew's going to share with us from the Word and a little bit of a glimpse into how we can best be praying for this team. And then I'm going to come back up and I, I want to challenge this team specifically as they prepare to go to Seattle. Now, before I introduce them to you via video and Andrew comes up here, I want to set the stage for the text that is before us this morning. I don't think it's a coincidence that we find ourselves in Acts 20, a time when, when Paul is meeting together with the leaders of the church at Ephesus and, and they're spending time with one another before they part ways, really in this text, never to see each other again. And it's this tearful, emotional, powerful time between Paul and the leaders of this church as they prepare to part ways. And so the parallels are not exact, but I think there are many parallels between what we're about to read in Acts chapter 20 and what is, what is happening in this room today. So what I want to do is I want to read this text, and I want to lay a couple foundations and then let that lead us into to hearing from this team and and this pastor who we're sending out, and then into challenging them. So I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. And we're going to read through what happens between Paul and the Ephesian elders. I just want, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine, we, we, we spent last week in Ephesus. Paul spent three years there. So he had close relationships. And now Paul's on his way to Jerusalem and he stops in Miletus, which is near Ephesus, at a port there. And he says, call for the Ephesian elders to come. And they come and they meet him there. 
And so this is Paul's concluding words to these elders whom he loved, whom he had spent time with as they're about to part. So I just want you to, I want you to look into Paul's eyes. And just see his face as he says this to these elders. Go ahead and look at verse 18. It says, when they came to him, he said to them, this is Paul speaking to these leaders. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Like, underline verse 24. That is, that is one powerful verse. I don't account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, with this text in Acts chapter 20, with this picture in this room, I want to lay two foundations, and then I want to introduce this team to you. Two foundations that are prevalent in Acts 20 and prevalent in this room. Number one, we are serving God together. Paul starts this passage. He says in verse 18, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time for the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. That word serving comes from duleo, a, a verb form of this word doulos, which means slave. That's the word for slave in Paul's day, and this is what the word that Paul uses all throughout the New Testament and right here to describe who he is and, and who we are. In this room, we are, 
We're slaves of God. We're, we're not church attenders. We're not routine religionists. We are slaves. And it is good to be a slave of God. This is who we are. We're serving God together. Slaves of him. Our lives belong to him. And so foundation number two, we're serving God together and we're spreading the gospel together. So this is what Paul says as a result of serving God. He was, he was preaching from house to house, publicly, privately, testifying, verse 21 says, both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing as a church. We're testifying all throughout Birmingham and wherever he leads us. We want to testify repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's why we're here in Birmingham. That's why we have jobs in Birmingham. We don't have jobs in Birmingham primarily to make money and be comfortable. We have jobs in Birmingham because these are avenues through which we testify to the gospel. We're here for the spread of the gospel. That's why we're in Birmingham. That's why we're in the positions that we're, we have all around this room for the spread of the gospel, which means if the Lord at any point says you can better spread the gospel in another context, then we gladly go. We don't cling to Birmingham or cling to this job or this reality here. No, our lives are here for the spread of the gospel. This is why we have breath, and therefore we are, we're free to go wherever he leads in the world. That's what we're doing. We're spreading the gospel together. And the more and more we realize this, and the more and more we put blank checks on the table across this room, the more and more the Holy Spirit of God is going to set certain ones of us apart to spread the gospel in different contexts around the world. And so here's the reality that is, that is facing the Church of Brook Hills right now. As we become active in sending one another, and, and that's what we want, okay? We want to be active in sending one another. I know that seems counterintuitive. The name of the game in church today is to bring as many people as possible in, and we're saying we want to send as many people as possible out. That's it's exactly it. We want people leaving all over the place for the spread of the gospel in other places. So here's the reality, though. As we become active in sending one another, we will experience the pain of separating from one another. If we are going to put our lives and our families on the table for the spread of the gospel around the world, then we are going to have to give up our notions of nice, lifelong relationships with one another in the same place, in the same church, in the same comfortable context. The, the reality is, as the Lord sends out, that will lead to separation from one another, and that is, that is not going to be easy. It's not easy for this team that we're about to send out to go to Seattle. It's not easy for people who know this team well. It's not easy as we, we commission Sister out from our faith family to go to India last week. Like This is, sending implies separation. And this is huge for us to realize because as long as we as a faith family are going to be abandoned to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, we are going to have to sacrifice relationships with the people who are sitting right next to us.
I want us to I want us to feel that in this text. I want us to feel that this morning. Because the reality is, if we are open to being sent, then we will necessarily be open to being separated. And, and that, that is not easy. But here's, here's the beauty. Like we have all of eternity ahead with each other. Yeah, we got hundreds of trillions of years. We got time. We got nothing, nothing but time in the future. We got, we got 70, 80 years here max. And we, we got a job to do here. And so we want the spread of the gospel here. We want those 70 or 80 years that the Lord gives that much. We want to make those count. Not for comfortable ease here. No, we're living for another world. We're spreading the gospel like wildfire here. And so, pain of separation means nothing in the ultimate eternal sense because we will, we will be together. So I'm getting ahead of myself. Pause. I want to introduce you to this team that we are sending out and, and in a sense, separating from. I want, to, I want you to see a short video that will give you a, a brief glimpse into this team of people that we are sending out, and then after you watch this video, then Andrew Arthur's gonna, gonna be up here, and he's gonna lead us to this next part, verses 22 through 25, and he's gonna speak to us, to the church you've got there in your notes, to the church in Birmingham. He's gonna share with us how we can be praying for them and give us a glimpse into this text and how it applies to them going to Seattle. So I want you to meet this team on video. Watch this with me. My name is Andrew Arthur. And I'm Kim Arthur. And this is our four-month-old little girl, Delaney Elizabeth Arthur. Pretty soon, on March 14th, we're going to get in the car and drive across country to Seattle, Washington, where we will be relocating our lives for the purpose of planting a church. We've been incredibly encouraged in seeing how the Lord has brought an interesting group of people, a phenomenal, energetic, faithful group of people to come together to uh, seek out whether or not the Lord was leading them to move to Seattle, which is a huge decision. It's been an interesting journey, for sure. Very scary thing, but also a very exciting thing. We weren't like looking to do anything like that, right? We've never even been on like a mission trip. That kind of inspired me to really think about, you know, what I was doing with my life and where I was going. Well, actually, Casey's doing her residency at Children's Hospital, so one of our final choices on that was Seattle, and um, that both of our programs end at the same time this coming summer, and just wondering what God was going to do with that when we're both done at the same time, and then the church introduced us to Andrew and Kim, and we were like, maybe we're heading to Seattle. We were like absolutely shocked when they talked that less than 4% of the people out there were evangelical Christian, and a, a place in the United States that's so underreach was just absolutely convicting. You know, when you have people going to like North Africa and Southeast Asia, it seemed like, well, you know, why can't we move to a place in our own country? And I looked at Suzanne, looked at my wife, and I said, what do you think about Seattle? And just asked her what, what she thought about moving to Seattle. And we both had tears in our eyes and just wept. And it's been a process since then of just trying to follow God's will and making sure it's not our own. So I've been looking into grad school and then it, that all happened before I heard about Andrew and Kim doing the uh, church plan in Seattle. And so when I heard about that, I was like, oh wow, what a cool opportunity to already have an idea of going to school out there and then also a church opportunity to start something completely new in a, in a new city. Brook Hills has been like this huge support team, like it's just this whole new 
group of people to work with, to um, share the gospel with. We hope that Brick Hills and the relationship we have um, going forth would continue throughout the duration of, of this journey. This really is an incredible group of people. It's amazing to think that over a year ago, none of us even knew each other. And yet, within the process of walking through this church planting residency in preparation to go and, and plant, the Lord has brought these people together, knit their hearts together, and has put them on the same page for their journey. And so we're going to be heading out at different times over the course of the next year to Seattle. My wife and I will get in our car and we'll make the drive across country starting tomorrow. And we will be joined thereafter at uh, different times of the year by the rest of the crew. It's an incredible group of people. They've encouraged and challenged my faith in many ways. And perhaps none more encouraging than knowing that this is a group of people who understand that the one indispensable condition for following Christ is that it must be free from all conditions. A true disciple cannot say to Jesus, I will follow you in this direction, but not that direction. A true disciple of Jesus cannot say, I will follow you under these conditions, or if this set of criteria is met. Jesus Christ isn't someone that we bargain with to, be, to become his disciples. He isn't a peddler of goods on a city street with whom we can negotiate. The Lord Jesus Christ is the God of all creation who says to us and to everyone else, forsake all for the sake of all. And he says this with absolute integrity because he himself forsook everything for the sake of everyone. And the Holy Spirit has seized my heart as he has seized many of your hearts with that reality. And so he's constraining us to echo Paul's words in Acts 20, 24, to say, but we do not account our lives of any value, nor is precious to ourselves, if only we may finish our course and the ministry that we've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So I want to thank you this morning for supporting and commissioning this team of people that we might be able to finish our course, that we might be able to follow our course, which leads from here, a faith family we dearly love, to Seattle, Washington, where we have the privilege of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You know, in preparation for this journey, I've been doing a lot of things. Perhaps... Some things I shouldn't be doing as much of, but I have certainly been returning to my literary roots. I've been reading some of my favorite adventure stories. Uh, one in particular is written by a guy by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien called The Hobbit. Now, if you're familiar with the famous Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit was the prequel to that story. Because it's in The Hobbit where Tolkien introduces us to Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo is a short, hairy, big-footed, always hungry little hobbit who lives in a place called the Shire with a bunch of other hobbits. And like all of hobbits, Bilbo valued comfort and predictability above all else. Hobbits love the security and the safety of the Shire. They cherished casual routine. They, they were perfectly content living in the Shire with their backs turned to the bigger world 
around them. And that was the case for Bilbo until one day he encountered the mysterious wizard known as Gandalf. Gandalf the Grey. And when he met Gandalf, that changed everything because before he realized it, Bilbo found himself swept up into a much bigger story. Launched into an adventure that involved the Shire but extended far beyond the Shire. And so after traveling to many strange lands and experiencing some incredible things, he eventually returns to the Shire. And when he does, he is a changed hobbit. He's not the hobbit he once was. That's exactly what Gandalf said after greeting him upon his arrival. He says, my dear Bilbo, something is the matter with you. You are not the hobbit that you were. And other hobbits began to notice it too. Other hobbits found relating to Bilbo to be a little bit more awkward because they found that Bilbo's priorities and his values had changed. That his journey opened his eyes to a whole new world. They felt him strange because he was in love with a life beyond the Shire. And so as the hobbits began to relate to him, it says towards the end of that story that they start shaking their heads and touching their foreheads and saying to themselves, poor old Baggins. I want, to call, I want to live the kind of life that causes onlookers to shake their heads and touch their foreheads and say, poor guy. Not because they pity me, because they have a hard time understanding what my life is all about. And I know David and the rest of the leaders of this faith family want nothing more than for people looking in on the church of Brook Hills to, to shake their heads and touch their foreheads and say, those poor people. Why do they spend their money the way they do? Why do they do the things that they do? Why do they go to the places they go? Why, just utterly confused by why we prioritize what we prioritize and value what we value. Confused by a group of people who are in love with a life that extends far beyond this world. For we know that through the gospel, God has called you and me out of the shire. He's called us out of the place of comfort and predictability, and he has launched us into a much bigger story. He swept us up into a story that, yes, concerns life here in Birmingham, but extends far beyond Birmingham to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul understood this dynamic reality. He understood this better than most. You remember in Acts chapter 9 when he's traveling on the road to Damascus, he encounters the resurrected Christ and Jesus flips his world upside down. For not only in that moment did, did Paul experience the grace of salvation, he was commissioned by Jesus to take the message of God's grace and extend it to all nations. And, and so he receives this commission, but then he receives this qualification as well. As Jesus tells him, as you go forth and you reach the nations, you will suffer. In fact, you will suffer much. What's amazing about the Apostle Paul is that whenever he, he heard those words, I love that he didn't raise his hand and object to Jesus. I love the fact that he didn't try to negotiate a better path. I love the fact that he said, okay, Jesus, I understand that you really are the Messiah. You are the Savior, and I'll, I'll follow you, but, but I'll only follow you in this direction, not that direction. Paul did not do that, and we see a glimpse of why that is in verse, 
in this passage, particularly verses 22 through 24, when we see something of Paul's desire and his chief ambition in life is to spend it in service to his Savior, a willingness to endure anything that he must endure in order to take the gospel to the nations. For Paul was the kind of guy who cherished above all else a a life that was spent serving faithfully his Savior, one that doesn't take the grace of God for granted, but one that takes the grace of God and goes with it. And that's exactly what he's doing. Check it out in verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Things are about to change for Paul. His course is running through Jerusalem. And his one desire above all is to be faithful. So in light of this text, I want to encourage you as our faith family to pray for our team in a couple of ways. And all of these ways are related to our desire to be faithful. We want to go and serve Jesus faithfully. So would you pray in a couple of ways for us? Would you pray, one, that, that we would be found faithful in the midst of uncertainty? Pray that we'd be faithful in the midst of uncertainty. Paul was, was certain about some things, and he was less certain about other things. He knew what he was supposed to do. He says it at the end of verse 24. To, he's supposed to testify to the gospel of God's grace And in this moment, he knows where he's supposed to go. The Spirit's constraining him towards Jerusalem. And he has a general idea of what's going to happen to him there. He knows it's going to involve some kind of hardship and struggle, some kind of persecution and suffering. But he he doesn't know the details. He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen to him when he gets there. But isn't that sort of the rhythm of the Christian life? We kind of live our lives in this strange interchange between certainty and uncertainty. Every Christ follower in this room can be certain about some things. For one, we can be certain about our directive. God always gives the directive. We, we know what we're supposed to be about in this life, that, that what we're supposed to do, Paul gets at it at the end of verse 24, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And his words there echo exactly what Jesus said and. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, whenever he appeared to his disciples and he, and he said to them these words, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Witnesses testify. Witnesses of Jesus testify to the gospel of God's grace. This is our directive. And, and the good news is that as, we, as this story unfolds throughout the book of Acts, what we see over and over and over again is a primary reason why the Holy Spirit is given to disciples, why he fills believers' lives, a primary reason is so that they can fulfill this directive. The Holy Spirit is a witnessing spirit. He testifies to us, assuring us that we've experienced grace, that we are saved. But then he empowers us to testify to others, to speak up, 
and share our message. Tell this story. This is why the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And I want to encourage you or remind you this morning that this activity is fundamentally a verbal activity. It requires the use of words. Always has. Always will. I know some of us are more comfortable with nonverbal forms of communication. We like to serve. We like to give. We like to meet practical needs. And that's, that's great. I, in no way do I want to diminish the, the compassion that the gospel creates within our, within our hearts to meet needs and to love our neighbors as ourselves. The gospel certainly creates that. The grace of God certainly compels that. But I want us to remember that Our primary directive is verbal. And if we're engaging in those kinds of activities without ever speaking up and sharing this story, our lives will look more like philanthropists than disciples. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to be witnessing, testifying disciples. Now that may make some of you uncomfortable because maybe you, you don't feel very confident in your ability to speak and to communicate the gospel to your friends, to your families, to your co-workers. And, and I want to encourage you that that's okay. In fact, that's a better place to be than a person who is confident in their ability to communicate the gospel. Because what that will do is force you, it will drive you into a deeper sense of dependency upon the Spirit of God. And you will find yourself praying over and over and over again, God, fill me with your Spirit so that I might speak. And then just be faithful to open up your mouth and do so. Because, and the, uh, the reality is some of you are going to do this in Birmingham through, for the rest of your lives. You're going to be testifying to the gospel of God's grace here. But then there are others of you when me and my team members return to visit Brook Hills months, years from now. You're not going to be sitting in these seats. Because God's going to lead you to do this elsewhere. To fulfill this directive in another context. God always gives the directive and he sometimes gives people specific direction. I mean, this is definitely Paul's example. He knew that his course runs through Jerusalem, and we stand before you this morning as a group of people who believe that our course runs through Seattle. I'm not suggesting that we have as much clarity on this decision and on this direction as the Apostle Paul. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that God has used a variety of things to pull this team's hearts and minds together and turn the trajectory of our lives towards that city. We believe he's directing us there. But then some of you may get frustrated by this whole idea of God directing people to certain places, in part because you, you overanalyze your own life journey, and you're perhaps thinking right now, well, what about me? I, I didn't make a conscious spiritual decision to come to Birmingham. My job brought me here. My school brought me here. My family brought me here. I was born here. And if perhaps you're wondering, is faithfulness a possibility for you? If, can you be faithful without having a certain destination and direction in mind that's been impressed upon you from God? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. This is Paul's example when he shows us what faithfulness is. Faithfulness to Jesus means that wherever you are, you will be all there. Regardless of how you got there. 
Wherever you are, be all there. The whole time Paul was in Ephesus, he served the Ephesians. He invested his life into those people. He served them. He loved them. He taught them. He shared life with them. He did not waste time fretting over why he was there as opposed to somewhere else. And I wonder if some of you are so paralyzed in your journey with Jesus because you can't get out of your own head. You're constantly wondering, well, should I be here or should I be elsewhere? Do I belong in Birmingham or do I belong somewhere else? And, and you're so busy asking yourselves these questions and praying through those questions that, that you've paralyzed your service in the present. And the reality is faithfulness says that wherever you are, be there. Faithfully discharge your ministry now. But then others of you, as you're praying this prayer, as you're trying to seek God's direction for your life, you, you feel that something's starting to change, that, that you have an itch to be elsewhere, but then you look at your life and you see that God hasn't quite orchestrated things for you to be where you want to be yet. And if that's your situation, then let me encourage you, do not allow your desire of a future ministry in another context to overshadow your present investment faithfulness occurs in real time. It is a present day reality. So as long as you are here, be here. Don't wait to be elsewhere to start testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Do so now. And then as your heart begins to turn, the Lord begins to determine your steps to another place, to another context. Then like Paul, wherever you go, be all in. Turn your attention to the Lord's direction and follow it in faith. But know so that as you do so, God rarely gives the details. He always gives the directive. He sometimes gives the direction, but he rarely ever gives people details on what their journey is going to be like, especially on the front end. Our God gives our details in stride, and my team's learning this right now. There are a lot of questions that remain unanswered. A lot of details that are unaccounted for. When will our houses sell? Where will we get jobs? Where will our kids go to school? Who will be our next door neighbors? Where will we gather together to worship Jesus together? Where, how will we scatter throughout the city to, to serve the people of Seattle? There are so many details unaccounted for, but that does not mean that we stop moving forward. Certainty is not a necessary prerequisite for mobility. So once you begin to feel led of God, follow God. We know that God's given us a directive, testify to the gospel. And we're a team of people who believe he's given us direction at this point in time. We're going to Seattle, and we trust that he's going to fill in the details in stride. This is why we have such incredibly rich passages such as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And we're told to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to lean not on our own understandings, but in all of our ways to acknowledge him, and he will make our paths straight. This is why we have Proverbs 16, 9. Many are the plans in a man's heart, but the Lord determines his steps. Our God gives the details in stride. So what we do in faithfulness is to move on what we know and refuse to be slaves to the unknown. Don't be a slave to the unknown and pray that we won't be as well. Pray that we'd be faithful in the midst of uncertainty. And then secondly, pray that we'd be faithful in the midst of difficulty. Paul knew going to Jerusalem would be hard. The Holy Spirit assured him of that. He would face imprisonment and afflictions, literally chains and tribulation. Yet knowing this, he still moved forward. 
He was the kind of man, we learn in verse 24, who valued faithfulness to Jesus above and beyond even the preservation of his own life. This is the kind of guy who said, if I'm going to Jerusalem, and if going there means I'm going down, I'm going down swinging. This is the kind of guy who said, I'm going to be faithful to my Savior, and if faithfulness leads me to an early grave, then so be it. Because what matters to me more than my own life is faithfulness to Christ. And notice in verse 23 that, that when he talks about these afflictions, these imprisonments, notice how he qualifies it, that the Holy Spirit testifies this to him in every city this is going to happen. Afflictions await him. Like, he's not necessarily applying this to Luke and his compa- travel companions. Surely they're going to be swept up in those struggles. Surely they're going to experience some of the pain and persecution that Paul's going to face, but, but he's focusing on himself. And so what I want us to do is to think about how this text, the analogy between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and our journey to Seattle and your journey to wherever the Lord may lead you in the future, I want us to see that the analogy between verses 23 and 24 in our lives isn't necessarily found in the promise of Paul's persecution. I mean, persecution is certainly a part of the Christian life, as David will point out in a few moments, but where verse 23 and 24 really intersect with our lives, I think, is, is in the passion of Paul's perspective. The fact that he saw that serving Jesus was more valuable than his own safety, that faithfulness to Christ is more valuable than life itself. This is the perspective of a man who's in love with the life beyond this world. That's the only explanation of Paul's perspective. So I'm wondering if this is going to be our perspective as well. Do we value faithfulness to Christ more than life itself? Does faithfulness to Jesus matter more to us than a lives of comfort and predictability? Does faithfulness to Jesus matter more to us than safety and security? Or do difficulties too easily sidetrack our service to Christ? If they do, then we may not be embracing the perspective of Paul in this passage. We may not be seeing what he's seeing. Now, we know we're going to Seattle. We're not going to Sri Lanka. We know that Jesus is leading others of you to contexts where risking your life is a bit more overt, a bit more explicit, where you know that stepping into a certain country and ministering to a certain people group will come at great risk to your own life. But at the same time, we're not so naive to think that we're not going to face our own fair share of difficulties moving to Seattle to plant a church. Serving Christ in any context will introduce and open the door to a variety of difficulties. It will be hard knowing that my four-month-old Delaney will grow up on the other side of the country without having as easy access to her grandparents. The stress and the strain and the fatigue that this kind of move can have on families and marriages is something that we must seriously consider. Because all of that can open the door to various sins and temptations. So would you please pray that we would be faithful in the midst of whatever difficulties arise throughout this journey. Pray that we'd have a proper perspective when difficulties come up. The temptation that I think that every believer faces when 
difficulties arise in their lives and start challenging their faithfulness to Christ, whether it be us going to Seattle, you staying in Birmingham, whatever the case may be, the temptation we face is when difficulties arise, we lose our perspective. We don't follow Paul's eyes in verse 24. Instead of focusing our attention on our Savior, we're tempted to turn our eyes and focus on our circumstances, our difficulties, our inconveniences, our hardships. And, and so when we turn our eyes towards them, we start looking at them directly. I, I fear that we render them too much dignity. Faithfulness doesn't pay attention to the difficulties directly. The perspective of a faithful follower of Christ is to say, no, as difficulties arise, I'm going to keep lifting my eyes. And I'm going to focus my attention my faith, my affections on my Savior. And I'm going to trust that knowing Him, serving Him, loving Him, obeying Him is more valuable than life itself. And no matter what difficulty comes, my eyes are fixed on the prize. That's what I'm going after. Would you please pray that our team would go after that? We'd fix our eyes on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Would you give us grace for that perspective, that we'd see Jesus and the joy of serving him to be far more valuable than any difficulty we may experience along the way. So would you pray? that we would be faithful in the midst of uncertainty, but you, would you also pray that we would be faithful in the midst of difficulty? And we want you to know, church, that as you pray these things and in this way for us, we too will be praying in these ways and through these things for you. Thanks. So this is the brother and this is the team that we are sending out. And... Uh, what I, what I want to do is I want to close our time in the Word by speaking specifically to them, to the church in Seattle. Now, that does not mean that everyone else is kind of excused from the end of this time because the reality is, well, these are things that I would certainly say to us it's from the Word, and, and the reality is, as they go, we are going with them. That's the whole picture in Acts 13. When we lay our hands on them in just a second, we're about to do. It's a picture of identification with them. So, so this is not something that's outside of you. This is something that is directly a part of you, of us together as a people. So I want to speak specifically to them. This passage concludes with Paul giving exhortations to the elders here. And obviously it's not exactly parallel. Not everyone who is going is an elder, but the reality is everyone who is going is a leader of this church because, well, they're the only members of the church. So they're all leaders in the church. And so I'm gonna, I want to speak to them as leaders in the church and, and, and to us in the church as well. But these are the exhortations I, I want to give them as they go. One, as you go, Go for the salvation of others. Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 20, Therefore I testify this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. What does that mean? 
I'm innocent of your blood. Well, I want you to turn back with me real quickly to Ezekiel chapter 33. I want to show you this picture, this image in the Old Testament that Paul is referring to in the New Testament. Exodus chapter 33. This is huge for understanding why this team goes to Seattle. For Paul to look at these folks in, from Ephesus and say, I'm innocent of all your blood. What does that mean? I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1. And I want you to listen to what the Lord said to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel talking, this is what God said to him. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them. Now follow this. Midway through verse 2. If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So this is, the, this is the picture in Ezekiel 33. Then we see Paul say, saying, I'm innocent of your blood. In fact, if you look in Acts chapter 18, verse 6, once Paul was in Corinth, he got kicked out of the synagogue with the Jews, and he turned around and he said, I'm innocent of all your blood. I've preached, you've kicked me out, I'm innocent. The picture is, if you have news that can save someone from destruction, and you, you give that news, you give that warning, you sound the warning, and people don't listen, someone doesn't respond, well, then you're innocent of their blood. But Ezekiel 33 has given us a picture of if, if you have news of impending judgment and, and you stay silent, then, then this person will, will die in their sin and and their blood will be on your hand. That's, that's a heavy text. So if, if you were in Japan and you, you were in charge of sounding the siren, the alarm, and you saw a tsunami coming and you didn't sound the alarm, when you knew a tsunami was coming, and that tsunami came and wiped out that town, 
their blood will be on your hands. And so, so we hear Paul saying this and, and in turn exhorting us, exhorting this team, you go to Seattle as watchmen. We are not sending you to be silent. We are sending you to sound an alarm. That the tsunami of God's wrath is aimed at sinners. And Christ has paid the price in the place of sinners. You know that. And so go and sound the alarm and be innocent of blood of people in Seattle. Do the same in Birmingham, right? See, this is for all of us. We want to to sound the siren of God's mercy all across the city. In the process, be able to say, innocent of blood. That's the picture here. So go for the salvation of others. And so how do you do that? Well, you go second with the word of God. That's how Paul was innocent. He says he's innocent in verse 26. And in verse 27, he says it's because he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. It's what he said earlier when he went from house to house publicly and privately declaring, teaching the word of God. And so that's the picture. That's how, that's how you sound the alarm, this word. Like you go to Seattle with this word. You, you don't have a lot else to bring to the table in Seattle but this word. You got nothing else to bring to the table in Seattle but this word. But this word is good. And so sound it. Every chance you get, sound it. Go for the salvation of others with the word of God. As you go, third, guard your hearts. Verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Let me turn one more place. Revelation chapter 2. Very last book in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 2. Guard your hearts. So Revelation chapter 2 is a letter from Christ to the church at Ephesus later on. One of the seven letters, seven churches, and this is what Christ says to the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul told the elders, guard yourselves. Take care of your own hearts. And listen to what what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus not long after. Verse 2, Revelation 2.2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false and were strong in doctrine and warning against heresy. I know that you're enduring patiently. They're enduring, bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. So they they're, seem to be thriving. But then listen to verse four. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some of your translations say you have abandoned your first love. And this is the picture that that most definitely is for all of us. We are a busy people who do a lot of good things. Even in the church, doing a lot of good things. In Seattle, doing a lot of good things. But the key question for all of us in this room is where is your heart? Where is your heart? Christ have your heart. To this team going to Seattle, guard your heart, guard intimacy with Christ. Because the reality is the adversary will come into this team, will come into this church at every turn and try to pull that our hearts away from him. And once our hearts are away, then he can he can destroy. Wreak havoc. So guard your hearts. And then as you guard your hearts, then care for the church. So pay attention to yourselves and to the flock, to all the flock. 
which is a great image. It's what we see all over Scripture. The people of God oftentimes referred to as, as flock, and, and it's the flock of God, which is key. He says, he's speaking to these elders, he says, he has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Key church leaders remember that the church belongs to him. So even those who are leaders in the church are not ultimate in their leadership. They are under shepherds. There is a chief shepherd, good shepherd, great shepherd who is over the church. And the church belongs to him. This is the whole picture here. 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13. God takes his people. He is shepherd over his people. And he entrusts them to under shepherds, to pastors, to overseers, to oversee the care of their souls. And, and so, so do this. Care for the church because the church belongs to him. It's not your church in Seattle. It's not my church, our church in Birmingham. This is his church. We are his church. And so remember that the church belongs to him and remember that the church was bought by him. The church of God which he obtained with his own blood. What an astounding statement. A reference to Christ, obviously his divinity and the fact that he has purchased the church with his own, own blood. And when we see that, it radically transforms our perspective of the church when we realize how highly Christ has valued the sheep that he has bought. You know what's so interesting about this whole imagery Scripture gives of of the people of God as sheep? We have this tendency to think of sheep as nice, cute, cuddly animals. They are not. If you have that image, it is clearly because you have not been around sheep. Sheep are dirty animals filled with worms and lice. All kinds of worms. They have to be washed in different chemicals to cleanse them. And they are obstinate, senseless, dumb animals. Which, which is humbling when you realize that this is the image that God has used throughout Scripture to describe us. <laughs> like, Scripture never says uh, they are lions and tigers or jaguars or stallions. No, we're, we're the dumbest of all animals. <laughs> or my people. <laughs> or sheep. And, and sheep as a result of these things, are not always easy to get along with. And and this is the beauty. Christ came to die, not for the strong and successful, but for the weak and sinful. For the, not for the clean, but for the dirty. And that makes life in the church challenging sometimes. Because you will be a part of a church full of Dumb, obstinate people. (laughs) If I could let you in on a secret, this church (laughs) is full of dumb, obstinate people, of which I am the foremost. But, But Christ has paid for them with his own blood. And so I want to love them. You charge to love them. As, as the Savior who bought them with his blood would love them. Care for the church. 
As you do, be alert. So shepherds, yes, have to feed the flock and care for the flock, but shepherds also protect the flock. And this is what Paul says. He says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. For among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Here's the deal. Satan does not take vacations, and so neither can you guys. And, and not in the sense of, of yes, yeah, spend time away resting with your family, but you can never let the guard down in Seattle, and we can never let the guard down in Birmingham. The adversary is always attacking, always. At this moment, is attacking. And so leaders in the church guard. They're, they're alert. Verse 31 says, therefore, be alert. From all sides, you'll face persecution from outside the church. Absolutely. There are, there are self-professing pagans in Seattle who are not longing for more Christians to come to Seattle to find a church. And, and so Paul's saying, go with eyes wide open. Like, it, it will not be easy. You will face persecution from outside the church, and you'll face, now this is where persecution outside the church, that's, that could be blatant. Now, this can be really subtle, dangerously subtle. You'll face opposition from inside the church. This is what Paul's specifically addressing. Fierce wolves will come in among you. Verse 30 says, from among your own selves. Can you imagine that? It says Paul speaking to this group of elders, committed elders, and he says, from among you, some are going to be raised up to try to pull people away. Isn't it awkward for me to look at this team and say, some of you guys are going to try to pull others away? It's almost like Paul is saying, you can't even trust yourselves. That is, in a sense, what he is saying. Leads to the next thing here, be devoted. Be devoted, he says, in light of the dangers ahead, outside and inside, now, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. That's Paul's answer. So I give you to God and to the word of his growth. So be devoted. This is the picture we saw way back in Acts chapter 6, right? When, when the church was growing and the apostles said, we need to make sure to guard twofold ministry of prayer and ministry of the word. We've got to be with God and we've got to be in his word. These twin pillars that the church must be devoted to. And so my encouragement to you guys is to keep those twin pillars strong to the ministry of prayer, be tireless in prayer, to the person of God. What can you do in Seattle in your own power? You can do, you can do nothing. And so, so let prayer never become supplemental among you. Let prayer always be fundamental among you. Have faith in God. Rest in His power, His greatness, and His wisdom, and His knowledge. Know Him deeply trust in him wholeheartedly. Be devoted to God in prayer and be devoted to the ministry of the word. It's the word of grace that will do the work in Seattle. So this power has, this word has power to build up a church and to give inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So have confidence in this word of grace. Have confidence in the gospel. People say, well, in a city like Seattle, there's so much, so much cultural trends or demographics or this or that 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 are new challenges to the gospel. And I don't doubt that there are, there are certainly challenges to the gospel, but the reality is this gospel has been working very well for 2,000 years, and Seattle's not about to stop it. So have confidence in this gospel. This gospel cannot be stopped. Last two exhortations, give selflessly. Paul says right after this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, which almost, when, you, when it comes upon it, you almost, it almost seems a little bit out of place. But then when you think about it, and oh, this is huge for the team in Seattle, this is, Huge for them because 
Certainly financial sacrifice is a part of this picture for them. It's also huge for us. This is Paul saying, greed and covetousness and materialism will destroy the church. So guard against it all. Guard against material gain, desire for more stuff, greed and covetousness. Guard against it all. Give of yourself. Selflessly give. It's better to give than to receive. Let that be your mantra. And go sacrificially. And this last part, this is where, oh, just picture the emotional intensity. It says, when he had said these things, he knelt and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. Like, this is a picture of them coming together. It's what we're about to do. We're about to pray. We're not going to get around Andrew and kiss him. But we are going to gather around. We're going to pray together. Because the reality is what we're seeing here at the end of Acts 20 is the agony of separation amongst the people of God. Separation for the spread of the gospel, which is where we come back full circle to where we started. Two conclusions. One, we temporarily separate from one another for the progress of his gospel. That's what Christians do. It's what Christians who want the spread of the gospel do. They don't cocoon themselves in easy lives and relationships that are always comfortable. No, we, we're moving with the gospel. There's more people who need the gospel, so we're moving. In some cases, moving in ways that we'll never see people again. That's, that's what Paul said here in Acts chapter 20. Now, obviously, we, by God's grace, have modern communication, modern travel. The, the, the reality is we will, we will likely, Lord willing, see these brothers and sisters' faces again like, even if by Skype. Paul didn't have Skype. But we've got Skype. So, so, so it's, not, it's not as harsh, so to speak, of a division here, separation. But when you think about it, even if we didn't have those things, and even the statement, they were weeping because Paul had said they'd never see his face again. When you think about it, in an ultimate sense, is, is only part of the picture. Yes. They would never see his face again here. And yes, there's likelihood, possibility that we could never see faces on the team that we send out from here again. But we temporarily separate from one another for the progress of the gospel, but we will eternally join with one another for the praise of his glory. And for trillions and trillions and trillions of years, we're going to be with one another with a host of people from Seattle and Birmingham, North Africa, and everywhere in between singing his praises. So we long for that day as we separate and send out.